Today's scripture comes from Luke chapters 8, verses 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, he declared in the presence of all the pe- of before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. All right, good morning. Uh, good to see everyone here today. Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. Uh, thank you all for coming out to worship with us. I know that for some of us, coming to church may actually be a big deal, um, and every morning we may really struggle with ourselves and, and really wonder if this is just if this is going to be worth it. Um, so for those of you who had come out this morning, despite the internal struggle you had, we just thank you, and, and we welcome you here today. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, our church has been going through a series, a preaching series on miracles. Uh, Now, miracles are common in the scriptures, um, and they display to us an extraordinary working of God's power that works outside of what we would consider natural. And perhaps a miracle that all of us, regardless of our faith, perhaps something that we've heard of at least once in our lives, is in the Old Testament when God split the Red Sea in half. And so miracles are often very dramatic and, and honestly, frankly, quite difficult to believe. 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume once said, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, and as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. That's a really long-winded way of saying that there's no way miracles can still exist. 
In fact, even Christians have sought out to explain miracles in a way that would be more palatable to skeptics of the faith. Theologian Rudolf Bultmann once said, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. This theologian also says that if we are living in a current time as this, then it would be rightly for, right for us to believe that miracles are impossible. For modern-day people like us, miracles may also seem completely irrelevant. When we read through the scriptures, when we go through these sermon series, a lot of us may be thinking, these are just stories to grab our attention. What does this miracle have to do with me? If I don't see this miracle occurring in real life today, how can I possibly learn from this, and what can this add on to my life Uh, But I wanted to contend a little bit here today that miracles in the Bible, they first show us a God who stands above nature. Uh, For all of us here today, the God that we speak about, the God that we teach, and the God that some of us may worship, he stands above the natural realm of things that that we're accustomed to. And and in some ways, that gives us a a great sense of comfort because he can do things that we can't. That's a very simple thing there. And secondly, I think the miracles of the Bible, which I believe to be real historical events, they point to an even greater work of God, namely the work of his salvation for his people. The miracles in the Bible, often they, they point to a very real spiritual need in all of his people by pointing us to a greater redemptive work that Jesus shows for us. And to show that today, I wanted to bring us through this passage, a very well-known passage for those of us who have maybe grown up in the church. And in the book of Luke, he illustrates and he narrates this passage, and he brings us through a narrative by showing us two very different characters. In fact, these two very different characters, their lives are parallel to each other until they finally intersect at Jesus. It's like we're watching two different characters in the same film intersecting at the same plot point. If you've ever watched Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, he does this very, very well. Now, in this case, in our case, the two characters that we're going to be studying today are a woman who's been suffering from a bleeding disorder for 12 years, and as well as an unnamed 12-year-old little girl, uh, daughter of a synagogue ruler. Immediately, you see the parallels there, the significance of the 12 years. But we'll see as we go through the passage that both of these characters, as they run parallel to each other, they finally cross paths at the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this miracle, I want all of us just to take home, even if it's just one thing, the miracles in our passage, they point us to the cleansing and the restoration and the affirmation that we all find in Jesus' work of redemption. So with that said, I want to bring us through this passage. Now, if we go into the passage, it says Jesus, who's now uh, been doing public ministry for a while now. So he's in the region of Galilee, and he comes back. This is his home turf. He comes back after doing public ministry, and as soon as he comes back, he is crowded by all these people. People have heard about what Jesus has been doing, and they have seen all the signs. They've heard of the signs, and they've heard of all the healings that he's been performing, and as soon as he touches ground, a man named Jairus, in in verse 41, it says, a man named Jairus, who was one of the rulers of the synagogue, and that's essentially an elder. He's in charge of the scripture reading, he's in charge of the worship service, and he's a very prominent figure in this community. Jairus comes to Jesus and he 
comes down to him and he begs him. He says, teacher, you have to come with me now. My 12-year-old daughter is sick and she's dying. And you got to imagine the desperation here that Jairus has for his own daughter. And so Jesus immediately, he follows Jairus. And as they're walking, they're pressed on all sides by this crowd. Because again, Jesus is very famous at this point. He's a full-on public figure. And people want a taste of what he can do. They want to see him, they want to touch him, and they want to hear his voice. And imagine the frustration of Jairus. It's like when you're trying to get home after church and you're stuck in midtown traffic. He's so desperate to get his daughter saved by Christ, and yet all these people are are pressing on him. They're making it tough for him to progress. And, And the desperation that we see in Jairus here is something that probably some of us can relate to. But to make matters worse... Now, here is the interruption, the great interruption in this narrative. This woman that we see in verses 43 to 44, it says she's been suffering from bleeding for 12 years of her life. And now scholars, and we can in good conscience say that she has a hemorrhaging uterus. She's been bleeding nonstop for 12 years, and she stops the entire narrative, and she comes up behind Jesus and touches him, and Jesus stops. Remember, Jairus is in a rush. He don't care about nobody except his daughter right now. Jesus stops to address this woman. And this is a very pregnant passage for us. Because this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years is in fact ceremonially unclean. If we go into the Old Testament, there are a lot of purity laws and a lot of cleanliness laws. And it says in in the book of Leviticus that anyone who has any unnatural discharge of bodily fluids is considered to be unclean. And so this person who is unclean has to quarantine themselves from rest of society, from the worship place. They can't touch anyone at the risk of making that other person unclean as well. In fact, it goes so far as to say that if you are unclean and there's discharge from your body and you touch bedding or you sit on a chair, even the furniture that your body touches is unclean. And a lot of people ask why they would have these certain laws. And you have to understand way back then, they didn't have the common health knowledge that we did. And this was really in in order for them to keep the rest of the community safe from contagious diseases. And we've all experienced this a couple years ago, haven't we? when we felt so unclean, anytime we came into close contact with someone who may have COVID. And so what do we do? We go into quarantine. We go into isolation. We take a test and we wait for those two or one lines. I don't even remember what one line is anymore. We wait for the results to come out and you're anxious and it comes out positive. So what do you do? You close all the doors, you close all the windows, you tell your friends you can't make it. If you have a family, you go into your own room and keep the wife and the kid in a different room, and you anxiously wait. You wait until that negative result comes out. But imagine that for 12 years, 12 years of isolation, 12 years of being separated from your family and your friends. This period of isolation was essentially a period of exile because she was still unclean. She couldn't start a family. She couldn't have kids of her own. She couldn't even worship in the same place as the rest of her people were. She is isolated for more than a decade. And you have to imagine what that could do to someone. Imagine what the loneliness from that isolation can do to us. 
But, but I imagine for this woman, one day she woke up and, and she felt that she was bleeding. But it's no big deal because she's experienced this before. It's part of her monthly cycle. And so she waits. She waits. She's going to wait seven days because after seven days, she'll be considered clean again. And she waits seven days. Blood hasn't stopped. And she says, this is strange, but maybe it's just a little bit of an out overflow this time around. A week, another week goes by. Blood's still not stopping. And so it says in the passage that she had spent her living on physicians because after weeks and months and years, she realizes that something is wrong with her body. So she spends all of her money to go to these doctors. And doctors back then, they either catered only to the rich or they took advantage of the poor. So you would imagine that after all her visits to the physician's office, she's left broke and even more lonely than she was before because she still feels and she knows that she's unclean. And even in her isolation, she's hearing the voices in her community. Don't go to that woman. Don't touch that woman. Don't go near her home. She's unclean. And she is separated, completely separated from everyone she loves, everyone she knows. And 12 years is enough time for the people in her community to forget about her. I don't know if you've ever faced this kind of isolation before. I, I doubt any of us have. But just even on a smaller scale, we've all somehow felt some sort of isolation. I remember when I was in elementary school and, and for one of the days, my mom packed me lunch and none of my friends sat next to me because the lunch smelled too bad. And in that moment, it was so harrowing because all my friends who I used to eat with, they don't want to eat with me anymore because I smell. And so I had to sit alone at the cafeteria table. That's isolation. Or, or perhaps... You're like me in a different way, where you've been struggling with something for so long. Perhaps it's, it's depression. Perhaps it's your anxiety. Perhaps it's, it's family baggage, a, a series of broken relationships. And you begin to get into your own head and you ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why can't I just be like that other person? Why can't I just be in society and just be a normal person? Why am I so messed up? There are times when, when I, I go through periods of severe anxiety and even periods of very intrusive and depressive thoughts, and, and I find myself isolating myself in my head even, even though there are so many people around me. I have a family, and even in the comfort of my own living room, I get into my own head, and I begin to ask myself, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Why can't you just fit in? Why can't you get rid of these thoughts? Why can't you just have normal thoughts like anyone else? The, that cold isolation of being lost in your own thoughts and the intrusive thoughts that follow afterwards, it really does a number on us. But again, 12 years she's had these thoughts. 12 years she's had to ask herself, What's wrong with my body? Twelve years, she's had to wonder if there was actually something inherently broken and messed up about her. And I guess 12 years was, was the cap for her because in an act of desperation, she's heard about this Jesus too. She's heard about what Jesus has been doing and she's heard about the ministry that he's leaving in, in his trail and in an act of desperation, it says here in, in verse 44, 
In verse 44, it says, <clears throat> She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, this is a miracle, if anything, right? This woman, she breaks protocol. She breaks uh, the COVID guidelines. She steps out of her home because she's so desperate for healing. She knows that doctors can't do it, and she knows nobody she knows can do it, but she's heard something about this preacher man. And so she goes and she touches his garment, hoping, hoping that something could happen to her. And as soon as she touches the tassel of Jesus' cloak, she's immediately healed. Imagine how disorienting that must have been. After 12 years of just bleeding, it just stops like that. And now she's like, this is it. This is my life. I made it. And imagine now, because she's in a crowd that so, she's so unaccustomed to, she's now trying to shy away from the crowd and, and go home quietly because she doesn't want anyone to know that she's there. And as she shrinks away, Jesus stops. This is the interruption. Jesus stops, and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Because despite all the people around him, Jesus is keenly aware of that broken woman. He says, who touched me? And after stopping, and, and Peter says, Jesus, there's so many people around you. Everyone's touching you, man. Just can we move on? This man's daughter is dying. Let, let's go. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me. And so she comes out in verse 47, it says, verse 47, she says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She comes trembling because she's scared of what Jesus is going to say. This is a teacher of the law. She knows what he knows. And she's afraid that he's going to say something along the lines of, you shouldn't be out here. You shouldn't have done that. Who do you think you are? Why did you leave your home? You're unclean. Why would you make me unclean? Why would you bring me into your messiness? Why would you do that? But he doesn't do that. Instead of rebuking her, what does Jesus do? He says something astounding, and he says in verse 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Nothing that she imagined he would say. In fact, he says the complete opposite. Instead of him pointing out her isolation, instead of him pointing out her uncleanliness, what does Jesus do? Jesus affirms her belonging by calling her daughter. Why does Jesus call her out publicly as opposed to letting her go quietly after she's been healed? Because he's publicly affirming her identity as someone who is no longer unclean, but as someone who belongs to God. He does this in front of all the people as if to tell them, she's one of yours now. She belongs to your community now because she belongs to God. He does this publicly so that people can see that what he does is not just healing her physically, but he's bringing her back out from isolation into a fold, into a sense of belonging. And he says, you no longer need to isolate yourself for any reason because you belong to God, is what Jesus tells her in this passage. 
The bleeding woman comes to Jesus in hope for physical healing, and yet she finds so much more. And so the question for us today is, what do we need to bring to Jesus today? What do we need to bring to Jesus today at this point in this hour? What brought us out of bed to come here? Was it a friend or was it a sense of guilt? Whatever it may be, what do we need to bring to Jesus today? What sort of messiness do we have that only Jesus can address Maybe it is, as we said earlier, that family baggage that you carry around with you everywhere you go. Maybe it is a sense of fear, thinking that you'll never find love because your family is so broken. Maybe it's a series of broken and and messed up relationships that really influence the way you think about relationships with other people. Maybe it's that one thing that you can't bring yourself to tell even to your closest friends. Maybe it is the weight of your anxiety and your depression What is it that we need to bring to Jesus today? What is it that we need to be freed from, that we need to be brought out of? Because if and when we bring that to Christ, Jesus doesn't rebuke us. Jesus doesn't say, get over it. Jesus doesn't do any of that. But he calls us son and daughter. You belong with me now. You belong with a good, good father. You belong in the family of Christ. You're not too broken for Jesus. None of us are too messed up for Jesus. None of us are too unclean for Jesus. So long as we bring it to him, he says, you are well. And now that's the story of of the bleeding woman but because so engrossed in her, we forget about that dying girl, right? Because if we look at it objectively, her situation is a lot worse, the dying girl, because she's, she's dying. And so we earl- mentioned earlier how these two, these two characters, they run parallel. They have a lot of similarities. We mentioned how the, the significance of the 12 years is important for them both. But also imagine how they run parallel in their differences, the bleeding woman is isolated, and she's poor, and she's marginalized, whereas the woman, uh, the, the daughter of Jairus, she probably lived in affluence. She's surrounded by people who love her in her home, and she has all the needs that met for her, and she has all the resources she needs, and yet, despite her affluence and despite her place in society, she still needed Jesus. So again, these two people run parallel and intersect at the work of Jesus. So in verse 49, it says here that as Jesus is doing all this, as Jesus has healed the bleeding woman in this beautiful encounter, as this woman is now set free from her sickness and from her isolation, it says in verse 49, someone came up to Jesus, or someone came up to Jairus while Jesus was still speaking. Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus took too long. Imagine how Jairus felt at that moment. Jesus, I came to you because I believed you could heal my sick daughter. I came out of my house and I'm trying to bring you home and I'm trying to have you enter my home so that you can heal my daughter. But because of this woman, my daughter is dead. I think that's how I would have felt. Because you took your sweet time helping someone else, you were too late to address my needs, I think is maybe how Jairus may have felt. But Jesus, 
He doesn't seem unhurried. He doesn't seem like he's in a rush. Instead, he tells Jairus to not fear, only believe, and she'll be well. And so they go on. And I'm sure Jairus at this point, he's not even thinking about healing. He's thinking about last rites. He's thinking about burial. And now Jesus is just some stranger that's going to come into his home and intrude. Now Jesus enters the home of Jairus and everyone around the little girl, obviously they're crying, they're mourning, and they're in deep despair because this 12-year-old girl, a girl that's on the verge of adulthood, a girl that could be of marriageable age at that time, a girl that could start a new life, is now dead. She had no chance to be a successful person in the society. She had no chance, like the bleeding woman, to start a family of her own. She had no chance at all because she's died at the age of 12. Now, what's also interesting here, though, is that as soon as that girl has passed away, that whole house has now become unclean as well. Because in the Old Testament laws, anyone around a corpse is also considered unclean. You notice the parallel here. The bleeding woman was unclean and isolated herself, and now this little girl, now, now that she has become a corpse, she has rendered the entire house unclean. Everyone around her is unclean and needs to go into cleansing rituals. Now Jesus has another bout with uncleanliness, except this time he willingly enters into uncleanliness to restore it. Whereas the bleeding woman brought her uncleanliness to him, now he steps into it. He steps into death because death doesn't distinguish between the poor and the rich. It takes everyone without discretion. And just as the poor woman had used up all of her life savings to get well, I'm sure Jairus had used a lot of his resources to make sure his precious girl wouldn't die. And yet no amount of money and affluence could actually help this little girl. For both people, it was only Jesus who met their real need. It was only Jesus who was able to save them. Now, I, I want us to realize, despite the city that we live in, despite the jobs that we may all have, despite the success that we have all tasted, and, and, and many of us are, are children of immigrants, and we made it, right? Our, our parents, they came across the sea so that they could work hard so that we can have a good future, and we made it by any means. By all means, we've made it. We're in a different tax bracket from our parents. Praise be to God. But no amount of affluence can actually help us. No amount of success can actually meet our true need. No amount of success, no job, no amount of money, no promotion can actually give us the healing that we need, that healing that can only be found in Jesus. There's a viral TikToker, I think she's on TikTok, um, and I forget her name, but you may have seen her on these before and after clips where she goes to homes that are just completely filthy. Um, and, and these are usually homes that are uh, owned or rented out by people who are really just uh, in poor living conditions, and, and they are single parents, or they're really at uh, their, their wit's end, and they can't help themselves, and they let their home just kind of disintegrate into a, a, a disgusting mess, right? There's dishes, and, and it's just absolutely filthy, and you could, you could Google this, uh, but she goes to these homes, and she does a deep scrub, and I mean deep scrub. She cleans out everything. She replaces the food. She cleans out the fridge. She kills the pests. She wipes the mold, and when someone asks her, why do you do this? Because this is, this is dirty business, 
And she says she wanted to show the whole world that anything is cleanable, but most importantly, that she wanted to help people who couldn't help themselves. That's beautiful, right? Uh, but that's exactly what Jesus does here. He enters into an unclean home. He scrubs it down by vanquishing the power of death. He restores, as we read, this little girl, little girl back to life. And in doing so, he shows us that he does a work that she couldn't have done by herself. He steps into the uncleanliness. He steps into the brokenness, restores it, and restores her back to life. And now if he can do that for someone who is clinically dead, how much more can he do for us? If he can do that for a dead little girl, how much more can he do for us? Now, if you're new to the faith or if you're unfamiliar with the faith, this is what we believe here today. That regardless of how you may feel about the state of your life, that regardless of how broken and regardless of how painful it may be, if we bring these things to Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone can heal us and make us whole. Jesus alone makes us whole. This goes for all of us gathered here today. We're going to go back to our jobs tomorrow, and we're going to be chasing that bread. Amen? You're not supposed to say amen to that. That's the whole point of the message. <laughs> Only Jesus can make us whole. We need to become keenly aware of the own brokenness in our lives, and we need to be aware of the power of God and his work that can be possible in our lives. Now as we close this narrative, in both these miracles, Jesus shows us that he is not only able to perform such miracles, but that he is pointing to a greater work that he'd perform later on. Except he wouldn't be performing a miracle for just certain groups of people, but he would be performing a powerful work for all of his people. Just as the blood of the bleeding woman considered her or made her unclean. In a grand reversal of things, the blood of Jesus that was shed out for us, that was poured out for us, that poured out and gushed out from his wounds, that blood makes us clean. The blood that we see on the cross of Christ is what cleanses us of all of our sin and all of our iniquity and brings us back in fellowship with him. It says this in 1 John 1. It's, it's here on the screen. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Blood is a symbol of life, and for us who believe in Jesus, his blood has, considered, has made us alive again. At the same time, Jesus' death is not a death that makes his house unclean, but it's a death that brings us to life. We have new life because Jesus has died for us. And we will rise again with him because he has resurrected as well. See, the miracles that he has performed in this passage point us to a greater work of redemption, the cleansing of our sins by his blood and the new life that we have in him by virtue of his death and resurrection. If we believe this today, then we are healed. And the other thing that we see is that despite how isolated and I know a church of our size, it could be very easy to feel isolated. You feel like you're not heard and you feel like you're not seen. But despite that, 
Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you look at these miracles, I want you to note the demeanor with which Jesus approaches the people who need healing. It's compassion, it's love, it's utmost care. I want us to believe today that when we bring our brokenness to him, he approaches us in the same demeanor with love and with care and with compassion. Now, before I close, I want us to think about just one more character, a uh, food for thought. This man, Jairus, is, you know, this, he's, he's kind of a side character here. The main character is Jesus and the two women that he's healed. But, but I, want, I can't help but wonder what became of Jairus after these encounters. Uh, scriptures don't say, and so we tread carefully to presume. But if I could imagine just for a moment how life went on for Jairus, he was a well-established man in his community, busy with his temple duties, a righteous man by any means, and probably pretty affluent and had anything he needed. Uh, but I wonder how his encounter, that interruption with the bleeding woman, changed the way he saw the poor and marginalized in his own community. Think about it. His whole life was put on pause because his daughter was dying, and then she died, but Jesus stopped to address the poor and the marginalized. Now, we don't know what happened to Jairus, but I would think that any time he saw someone who was isolated and poor and marginalized and oppressed in his own community, he would think back to Jesus, even if it meant interrupting his life even if it meant being inconvenient in his plans for his success, he would stoop down just the way Jesus stooped down to this woman, just the way Jesus approached her with tenderness and care that he would help those who are poor and marginalized. The hypothetical of Jairus, I think, is an important application for us today. Not only do we believe in the powers of Jesus for our souls, that he cleanses us, restores us, and affirms us through the work of his redemption, that he stands above nature and can do marvelous things. But do we have his eyes for the people around us? Do we have the courage to stop everything, to tend to the needs of the poor and the marginalized in our city? We live in such an amazing city with so much disparity between the rich and the poor and yet we have the love of Christ to show us what to do. And so that's my hope and prayer for our church today, that we would bring to him all of our brokenness, that we would be brought out of our isolation, that we would believe in his power to heal us, that we would know his love for us, that we are not too broken for him, and that also we would be an extension of his compassion to those who need it the most in our cities, in our families, and in our jobs. May that, the love of Christ, charge us and move us forward to another week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word testifies to your powers. And we pray that today as we learn about this woman and this child, that we too would bring to you what is broken and what is unmanageable by our own strength, that we would find healing in your love for us 
that also, God, we would have the same love and compassion for those around us who are still lost in isolation, who are still marginalized. We thank you, and we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.